From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Well, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, a brand new show for you. Um, we have been bumped by Archbishop Laurie, and I can think of few people I would rather be bumped by, quite frankly. But uh, the Archbishop is visiting Mount St. Mary's, and uh, Father Tregilio, as we speak, will be rolling out the red carpet. Uh, but he was gracious enough to uh, pre-record this episode, so you have some brand spanking new content this Monday here on EWTN's Open Line, so we won't be taking your phone calls. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program, and your host, as he is every Monday, the aforementioned Father John Tregilio. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Please give the Archbishop our best regards. I certainly will. <laughs> and we're going to start off with Gary, who writes in, Why doesn't the Church allow non-Catholics to go to confession? To go to confession? That's right. Uh, well, because um, it's a sacrament of the Catholic Church, and uh, one must be in full communion with the Catholic Church in order to receive her sacrament. So, obviously, if someone's uh, valley baptized, they have um, they have we consider partial union. Uh, that's why when a baptized Christian from another denomination, like Lutheran or Baptist or Presbyterian, uh, comes into the Catholic Church, uh, we don't necessarily call them converts. We say that they are coming into full communion. Um, that being said, um, the sacrament of confession is for someone who's a full member. Now, if a non-Catholic wants to talk to a priest, we would certainly treat that with confidentiality, and uh, but it wouldn't be the same as the sacrament because we we have to um, the priest must be able to impose a penance, which obviously we don't have jurisdiction over people who are not uh, of uh, of our f in full communion with the Catholic Church. And therefore, you know, we would have to just say, I can, you know, speak to you, we can counsel you, advise you, uh, give you a blessing, but I'm not able to absolve their, their sins. Um, and that's, you know, I know sometimes people don't, don't necessarily think that's fair, but I think it is because you know, we don't impose all the obligations and responsibilities on non-Catholics. Therefore, just like with Holy Communion, you know, people say, oh, isn't that unfair that you don't re extend Holy Communion to non-Catholics? And we say, well, you know, one must be in full communion in order to receive communion. And likewise with the sacrament of uh, penance and reconciliation. Again, this is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Nathan writes in, what's the difference between God's foreknowledge of our salvation and being predestined for salvation? Is it possible to desire and seek salvation but not earn it because you are not predestined? Well, we, uh, we don't like to use the word earn because uh, that has a little connotation of Pelagianism. Pelagius was a heretic that St. Augustine uh, had battled with, and certainly the Church had um, endorsed the position of St. Augustine that um, one does not um, earn their way into heaven. It's a, it's a totally free gift from God. Now, it is true there is a Catholic um, type of predestination that's different from the one that John Calvin and, uh, and the Protestant Reformers uh, adopted. Uh, that was a 
you know, John Calvin believed in the absolute predestination that God predestined people to heaven, but also predestined people to hell. Uh, the Catholic Church does not believe God predestines anyone to hell, but that some he predestines to heaven. And whether that's based on his uh, foreknowledge or on his um, uh, omnipotence, you know, that's an argument that still has been unsettled. It goes back to the Middle Ages between the Dominicans and the Jesuits who fought fiercely on either side of the fence. The Dominicans were pushing for uh, God's uh, omnipotence and the um, Jesuits were fighting for his foreknowledge uh, that God could see in the future what someone would do uh, with the Dominicans. It was more like, you know, with God so absolute that he isn't curtailed even by some by someone what they're going to do in their future. Um, so that I, that being said, you know we do believe that God, you know certainly like with the Blessed Mother, He gave her uh, the graces that she needed in order for her not only to be the mother of Jesus but also uh, for her salvation. So from the Immaculate Conception to every other grace she received, uh, that was a pure gift from God uh, that He freely chose to give her. And as we record this program, this very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, it's the Feast of St. Bernard of Clairvaux, so it's only appropriate that we take an email from Bernard, and he says, <laughs> why, why aren't there women priests? The reason why is because Jesus didn't choose any women as his apostles. Now, I know some people would say, well, that goes against the historical milieu, right? Nice little French word we like to drop now and then. Um, <laughs> but... Jesus wasn't restrained by the conventions of his time either, because remember, he spoke to the woman at the well. Uh, you know, he was friends with Martha and Mary. And uh, there are many instances where Jesus, you know, crossed the line in, in terms of the, the conventional um, restrictions at his time. So if he had wanted to, he certainly would have extended, you know, certainly if, if anyone would have been a perfect uh, disciple and apostle, would have been his blessed mother. And he did not extend that invitation to her, nor to any other uh, women. Now, doesn't mean that the, the, the holy women of Jerusalem, or that Martha or Mary, or any of the other, like uh, the women who um, certainly um, were around, around Jesus uh, as his followers, were certainly, they were holy, they were pious, um, but... Again, priesthood isn't something that you earn or that you merit. It's a free gift. So Jesus chose 12 men. Now, part of priesthood, holy orders, is that you become an altar Christus, another Christ. And Jesus' bride is the church. So uh, it also makes sense that a male is a priest because the bride, the female, is the church. The male, Jesus, is in the, the person of the priest. So to have a female priest is considered some of a theological oxymoron. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Uh, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. And, and just to kind of follow up on that a little bit, uh, uh, Father, it, it's, it's really it, it's somewhat uh, counterintuitive is not the word, but it's hard to understand, especially as we watch things as they're playing out overseas uh, in our current day and time. And and there are graphic illustrations of the lack of respect for women in certain cultures. And why is it that that the the greatest the, the Catholic Church, probably the greatest champion of women that the world has ever known, would come out of such a uh, femininely restrictive culture like that? 
Well, again, you know, you know what I find interesting is nobody ever mentions uh, that also the Eastern Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, all the other Orthodox Christian churches do not have female priests. And they have valid orders like like we do, but it's sort of the Catholic Church. You know, we get the sort of the heat of the of the argument there. And again, it's not that this is um, a matter of justice or equity, because just like a, a man can come to the seminary, and just because he goes to all the classes and you know he seems fit, uh, he can't say, "Well, I I did my part. Now ordain me." You know, part of that is the authorization of the call from Holy Mother Church, and part of Catholic dogma is sacred tradition as well as sacred scripture. So nowhere in scripture do we have Jesus calling any women to be uh, to the priesthood or to the episcopacy, uh, and neither has anyone from the time of the apostles till now. In fact, Pope Francis just instituted a new um, tweaking of the Code of Canon Law that someone who does attempt to ordain a woman to holy orders incurs an excommunication. So this is to re, you know, re, um, iterate that this is not a matter of, of what, is it fair or not, because the call to priesthood, uh, that's a gift from God, and we firmly believe that he has restricted that, that gift uh, to baptized males, but not to any baptized male, to those who have been you know, found uh, authorized by their local bishop. You could, I mean, you could turn the argument on its ear, could you not, and say, is it unfair that our Lord or the creator of the universe gave the most important task that has ever been entrusted to a human being to a woman? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, uh, the Blessed Mother, you know, again, she didn't earn or merit this. It was a totally pure, free gift from God to Our Lady. And not only was she chosen to be the Theotokos, the Mother of God, but also given the title of Queen of Heaven and Earth, I mean, that's second fiddle only to, to the king of kings himself. <laughs> very good. This is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We won't be taking your phone calls today, but if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag edition here of EWTN's Open Line Monday, you can just send us an email. The email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com. And just put Monday or Father Tregilio or Father John in the subject line, and we'll get it to the appropriate folder. And you can always text your question. Text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response. Text your first name and your question. Message and data rates may apply. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. That's right. We won't be taking your calls today. It's a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. Are you ready to get your Aquinas on, Father? I have my Summa at my very fingertips. <laughs> April writes in and she says, I left the church and became an atheist. Now I am reading Aquinas' Five Ways. Which of the five ways do you think is the strongest? And can, can, you recommend, <laughs> can you recommend any other stronger arguments that will bring me back to the faith? Well, uh, 
<laughs> I've never been asked which of my, which of the Quinque Via is my favorite. Uh, I'm glad that she certainly uh, is familiar with that. You know, St. Thomas uh, shows us that it's reasonable uh, to ascertain there is a God. Uh, so that's part of what we call natural theology. Uh, it's a sign that um, that human reason on its own can deduce that there is a God. Now, that there's a triune God, three persons and one God, that's a revealed uh, truth, and we believe that by faith. So that's uh, the purview of theology. But philosophy uh, tells us by sure reason alone, and this is evident because St. Thomas Aquinas, you know, bases his quinque via, his five ways, basically on the, the logic of, of Aristotle. Uh, so the ancient Greeks and Romans, um, you know, at their heyday, uh, moved away from their polytheism and deduced that there has to be a God. So St. Thomas talks about a prime mover. That's not, you know, someone that's driving around in, in, in a Honda. Prime mover is this idea that there is um, motion and motion not being necessarily physical, but moving from potentiality uh, to actuality. So, for instance, there's a theoretical or potential universe, but it didn't exist until something that was already in existence, in motion, moved it to actuality. So that's the, the one of the, the five ways there. You have also uh, governance, uh, you have causality, the uncaused cause, uh, the necessary cause. Um, all these arguments... I would have to say, you know, um, all five of them are, are beautiful and valid. Uh, I would not want to single one out because I think all of them are valid. But if you push me up against the wall and uh, twisted my arm, uh, I would certainly say uh, the prime mover uh, is, is one that certainly uh, comes to mind first. But I like all, all five of them. Is there anything in particular in the, along these philosophical lines that you think might uh, kind of help pull April back into the fold? Well, I think, you know, the, the, like this idea of, of causality, you know, we, we as, um, high, you know, very uh, sophisticated people, we like cause and effect. I mean, that's the whole premise of, you know, CSI. <laughs> I mean, you know, they go, the, they, they see a body laying on the floor and there's a knife sticking in somebody's back. You say, well, something caused that, okay? It just didn't happen by itself. Somebody stuck the knife in that guy's back. So we use a lot of our, you know, common day experience under cause and effect, and I think, you know, that when you look at the universe and you see, well, what brought the universe into existence? It couldn't have happened by itself. Something caused it to be. Um, and since the, um, you know, when you think about the Big Bang uh, uh, position, that means that there was a moment when the universe did not exist. The Big Bang is the very instant that it was created. Well, how did it happen that it just went from nothing into something? So something caused that to be. Uh, so I think if you, and by the way, it was a Catholic priest who came up with the idea of the Big Bang, um, a French priest, uh, you know, so faith and reason are not uh, enemies uh, in any way, shape, or form uh, in our faith. So I think the more you look at the actual philosophical, scientific um, argumentation uh, for the, the universe, you see that it coincides that, you know, there is uh, a God. Now, you need the gift of faith to uh, you know bring you into that other realm of revealed theological truths like the holy trinity and that but i would say you know starting with apologetics or what we call natural theology i think the lady's on the right path and then you know then you you take that next step into revealed truths uh, which then obviously like the catechism 
um, the Catholic Church, that first um, pillar on on the faith, I think, is a beautiful way of introducing yourself to both realms there, the natural and the supernatural. Uh, again, it's a special mailbag edition of Open Line Monday. We won't be taking your phone calls today. If you're listening to us on a AM, FM, Catholic radio station around the country, be sure to take care of those good folks that effort so hard every day to bring you this great programming. And if maybe you're not listening on an AM, FM station and you'd love to have one in your area, um, send us an email. We can maybe help you. Our uh, Steve Splonskowski is uh, standing at the ready, ready to kind of help talk you through the process of how you might make that happen in your area, just send Steve an email at radio at EWTN.com. That's radio at EWTN.com. We received some calls that have come in after hours for Father Tregilio on our listener comment line. Let's take a listen to one of those now. Hi, I was just calling. My name is Pam from California. And my question is, when someone says that they're just going to wait, they just live their life the way they want, and they're just going to ask God for forgiveness at the end, Aren't they thinking they're just duping God? That's my question. Have a good day. Thanks. I think that's an excellent question because some people are crafting an Excellent observation is what it is. <laughs> now, we, we call it the Constantinian effect that the Emperor Constantine waited till his deathbed to be baptized. And when you're the emperor, you can sort of, you know, play with that only because... You know, there's people working to make sure you stay alive, but even then, it's it's a dangerous proposition, because what if you die uh, without the, the chance or opportunity uh, to uh, fully embrace uh, the faith, uh, to believe in, and then follow, you know, what you've been called to to live as 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 a believing Christian? So I tell people, you know, you can't pull one over God's eyes, and just to wait until that last moment for final. Uh, repentance, you might not have that moment because if you die instantly, and you know, the nuns used to tell us this when we were in Catholic grade school, what if you cross the street, street and a truck runs you over immediately? Um, I was always afraid of crossing our street at my school because I thought these <laughs> trucks were driving around looking for kids to run over. But it's true, if, if you die instantly, you don't have, a, you don't have the, the chance to, to repent. And once you're dead, that's it. A particular judgment takes a place. Now, if you have a long illness where you're conscious, okay, and you're in an area where there's a priest available, oh, yeah, you might be able to get the sacraments, be baptized, get the apostolic blessing, all that. But a lot of people, even if they have a lengthy illness, are unconscious. So it's it's a gamble where you could lose everything. So it's better that you embrace the faith now and then grow in faith because the, the more grace you receive, the more you're capable of receiving. All right, put your, uh, well, we'll get to that in a minute. Well, let's, take, <laughs> let's, take a okay. to, let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. This is Daniel. I'm calling to uh, find out the purpose of circumcision. Uh, if it's still expected in our current culture modern day or if that is something that uh, was now removed by the completion of the law by Jesus okay for religious purposes we're no longer bound under the old covenant um, you know it's in the Acts of the Apostles uh, there was a big argument in the early church on whether or not the Gentiles who were not Jews and then became Christian would they have to first become a Jew in order to become a Christian? Since the 
you know, Jesus was a Jew, the apostles were Jews, and they were obviously under the old uh, covenant, and Jesus himself, because we celebrated the, the feast of the circumcision of Jesus on January 1st uh, in, the, uh, in the old days before the council, and then it became Mary, Mother of God. Uh, all the apostles uh, were circumcised, but all of a sudden you had this phenomenon where you had these Greeks and some Romans who were becoming Christian, and should they observe the, the Mosaic dietary laws, like not eating pork, should they be circumcised? And obviously this is um, a, a concern for the men uh, who are adults at this point. Uh, uh, you know, a baby being circumcised is certainly traumatic, but it's much more uh, as an adult male. So they asked, you know, and it was evenly divided among the apostles. And then they had St. Peter having that vision of these the food falling out of the sky, uh, things that he was forbidden to eat, uh, pork, you know, I don't know, if, I don't know if he saw like bacon and sausage and that falling out of the sky, but he was told by the, the voice in this vision that, you know, eat, you know, it's not what you, uh, it's not what you take from the outside in, okay, it's what's already in you that makes you unclean or impure. So it was decided at the Council of Jerusalem that they would not impose the requirement of circumcision for religious purposes. Now, that being said, I mean, at a practical level, I mean, uh, a lot of people still get circumcised and, uh, you know, for uh, biological, medicinal um, reasons, hygienic, other than religious. Um, but we're not bound religiously to that because we're under the, the new dispensation. Again, it's a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we're not taking your phone calls today. Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. Hi, my name is Daryl. I would like to know when them when them three ladies went to the tomb of Jesus when he was supposed to be dead, they brought ointments to oint, anoint the body. How did they plan on getting into the tomb when the stone was supposedly in front of it? Well, you know, this guy that's is smart. A, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, he must have been watching CSI, okay. Um, well, the... the they would obviously have had to have the soldiers move the stone, which, you know, it was understandable that after three days, you know, there's no longer... And these ladies would not have been able to take the body themselves. You know, they would have needed men to help them if that was their, their purpose. So uh, their thought was to go there on the third day. Um, you know, nobody, none of the soldiers would have, you know, presumed that there was any chance of him... Uh, not being dead. And so I don't think they had any fear of getting there and not being able to have the stone roll back. I don't think they, in any way, shape, or form, would have been able to do it physically themselves, but they would have had to have the soldiers help them. Um, you know, obviously this isn't a common occurrence where you roll stones over the, the tomb to prevent someone from taking the body. Uh, although there were cases where, you know, mausoleums or tombs were covered so that the animals would not uh, get in there. Um, but this stone was obviously so huge and large that it would have taken a few burly, you know, military men to to move it. So what I don't about think the that, uh, What about that seal the emperor put there? <laughs> well, yeah, there was. I mean, you know, in the movie they have this elaborate thing where they put the the seal of Pontius Pilate on there. Um, the scriptures themselves don't necessarily make explicit that there was uh, a formal thing, but I would presume that. You know, being that this was under Roman jurisdiction, it was a Roman guard uh, who watched over the, the tomb because um, even though they had Hebrew guards, this was under Pontius Pilate's jurisdiction 
that the death of Jesus took place. So there probably was something there besides just the, the rock, something that it's like hands off. <laughs> this is under, you know, uh, Tiberius Caesar's uh, uh, domain. Yeah. There's no way to prepare for every eventuality on Open Line Monday, Father John. <laughs> I could see that. <laughs> Again, this is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag, you can just send us an email. The email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com. And just put Father John or Monday in the subject line. This is EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. All right, Father John, you can you can take your Thomistic hat off and you can put your your uh, you can put your pastoral Beretta back on. And uh, Linda writes in: My friends have been praying to have a child for a couple of years, and they're beginning to despair. Do you have any advice as far as saints to pray for intercessors or ways I can pray with them? Oh, I'm glad they they asked that because uh, Saint Gerard is a very very Good saint. He's a patron saint for uh, women who um, want to have a child. And, uh, in fact, they have this big, huge feast of St. Gerard uh, in Newark, New Jersey. There's the statue of St. Gerard. And there's actually a little handkerchief that's um, uh, available. I think if you, um, if the people want to, you know, are interested, if they contact me through EWTN, a friend of mine, Father Thomas Nicastro Jr., uh, is very uh, influential uh, in that uh, devotion to St. Gerard, and we could get you some information on the prayers, and then um, also, you know, um, you know, this uh, handkerchief. But praying to St. Gerard is by far the most important. But I would also, um, you know, you could pray to uh, St. Anne, because she was believed to have been, you know, fairly old when she conceived of Our Lady, and St. Elizabeth, who was uh, thought to be barren, and she gave birth to John the Baptist, so, you know, those are other saints, but St. Gerard comes to mind right off the bat because uh, he is the patron saint for mothers, especially those who are having difficulty in, in conceiving. And I can tell you as a pastor for 16 years, I, you know, promoted that devotion and many, many, many times people who had difficulty, you know, conceiving uh, were able to, to do so. And I would also throw in besides the, um, the supernatural, at a natural level, uh, there's something called NAPRO, uh, that's something that, you know, your doctor or, or your physician can help you with. Uh, that's a good uh, method, too, to help uh, in, in seeking co- conceiving a child. Yeah, and one of the best resources there is the Pope Paul VI Institute. Dr. Thomas Hilger's in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. And I believe that that is uh, Pope Paul IV. Uh, just search Pope Paul IV, and that'll get you to the Paul the Sixth or VI. It's VI. VI. Excuse me. Um, you had I, the fourth. I, I caught myself before you had to jump in. So, <laughs> oh goodness gracious! Anyway, let's take a listen to another listener comment line call. My name is Lee. I'm calling from Long Island, and I have a a habit which is not a. I would say it's a bad habit. 
that I ride my motorcycle too fast. And I was uh, talking to my priest about it. I brought it to confession a few times. And I was talking to him outside of confession. And he said, well, it's really not a sin per se. And I was just wondering what, what the answer would be from your guys' perspective. Okay, thanks very much. I appreciate it. Okay, well, um, certainly, you know, um, when you look at the Ten Commandments, you don't have thou shalt not raise your hog, okay? Uh, <laughs> it's not one of the commandments. But uh, I think what, what it, it, prudence is always the best um, determiner of, of this. And if you're riding a motorcycle or driving a car or uh, driving a truck, any type of uh, motorized vehicle, you know, if you're careless or imprudent, then your culpability increases the more reckless you become. So if you're just, you know, going slightly over the speed limit, okay, you're breaking the law. That's not a good thing. Uh, you, you may be in the realm of, of, of venial sin if you're doing it deliberately. But as you become more and more dangerous to yourself and others, you're you're getting into the into the realm of possible mortal sin because, um, you know, if, we, if, we, if it's considered like gross negligence, uh, that you could care less if you do hurt someone or yourself, then that that would be a mortal sin. And if you're really, really going fast, just for the fun of it, realizing that the faster you go, the more danger uh, there is of you or both you and uh, an innocent victim being hurt or killed, um, that's, you know, very, very uh, bad. So I would say not in and of itself, you know, and then it's a subjective thing of, you know, what do you call fast? Okay, being Italian myself, you know, our idea of fast <laughs> is a little bit different than some people from other parts of the world. Uh, but again, prudence and, uh, you know, asking yourself, why am I going this fast? I mean, uh, you know, a little bit uh, occasional, but if you're consistently going fast and you ask yourself, what is the potential and the probability of me possibly hurting myself, or worse yet, someone, an innocent victim. You know, I had a brother who was killed by a, um, an underage drunk driver and this other fellow who was involved with road rage. Uh, so I could tell you personally, you know, it's, it's very uh, important to be prudent when, when you're on the highway. Now I know why they call you Father Ferrari. 833, <laughs> well, actually, I'm not going to give out the phone number because it's a very special mailbag edition uh -huh. of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father Ferrari, I mean Father John Tregilio. Alfa um, Romeo. There you go, oh, Alfa, <laughs> pardon me. So let's, let's take a listen to another uh, of our listener comment line calls. Hi, my name is Esther, and I'm calling out from Moscow, Idaho. And I really appreciate everything you guys do and all the questions you guys answer. And I just had a question about our Father God and... I had a little boy, I was teaching Sunday school, and I had a little boy come up to me, and, I, and he asked me, he said, if, if God loved his son, why would he sacrifice his son? And I, I know this is like the biggest, like a big question, and, and of course, you know, I, I gave him the textbook answer, we, you know, God, you know, he loved all of us, and so he was willing to sacrifice his son because he loved us. But now that, you know, I have a son, and my son is seven years old, I love him so much, and I would never sacrifice my son for the world. I let the world crumble. Like, I love my son so much. So I was wondering, like, how, how can you answer that question when you have kids? Okay, well, that it is a difficult concept to, you know, for adults, let alone for, for children. 
Um, but we do want them to uh, appreciate that God, you know, uh, God the Father, you know, loved us so much that he sacrificed uh, his son. Now, obviously, we have to remember that uh, Jesus didn't cease to exist. His humanity, he suffered death, but in his divinity, he was always immortal. So God did not actually sacrifice his son into oblivion. Um, and because you and I are here on earth, um, you know, the ultimate way we could sacrifice, it's like when Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son Isaac, uh, that was an extreme for him because, you know, Abraham's on this earth and, you know, there was no um, possibility of anyone getting into heaven yet because the Messiah had not yet come. So for him to kill his son um, Isaac uh, as at the command of God was considered the, the ultimate and yet he was stopped because the angel um, you know, prevented him from slaying his son because it would not have affected anything. It was just uh, a way of, of Abraham uh, showing his faith and, and, and proving his fidelity. With God the Father, however, when he, he sacrificed his son, he gave us Jesus. Jesus died in his humanity, but his, hum his divinity was never in jeopardy. Uh, so uh, it, it's not the same type of uh, scenario as, say, with, with uh, Abraham and, and Isaac. Uh, God's sacrifice of son was, I don't want anyone to think that it wasn't uh, perfect or total. It certainly was, because Jesus shed every drop of his blood for us. Uh, from the moment he was um, you know, born, the moment he was conceived, even at the moment of his, of his circumcision, I think it was Fulton Sheen who, who uh, gave a wonderful meditation on the fact that, you know, just that one drop of blood uh, shed at his circumcision would have been enough to uh, save the world. But uh, God in his infinite love and mercy for us, you know, allowed Jesus not to just give one drop, but all his blood. Uh, and certainly, you know, the three hours he hung on the cross, his scourging at the pillar and his crowning of thorns and the carrying the cross, you know, that was like really a, a pronounced sign of divine love. Um, again, it's a hard concept to get, you know, for us in our humanity to appreciate, but, you know, we don't want to hide it or sweep it under the rug for, for the children. We just want to, them to, to appreciate that God loved us so much that he gave his son for us. Um, and, and, and to make an analogy, it's, it's kind of difficult. It, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to put on the same realm as saying, you know, well, it's like a mother giving up one kid to save the rest of them. Um, cause like you said, no mother would want to give up one son, even if it saved the rest. But we want people to see that God loves us more than human beings could love. That's the key here, that his love is perfect and infinite and we can never, uh, get to that same level. Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. The name is Nicole from Fort Worth, Texas, and several years ago, I'd say about uh, 45 years ago, I had my son made his first communion, and I wanted it to be really memorable and made it a big party, which I probably shouldn't have. I've added a lot of his classmates who were non-Catholic. And I asked the priest at the time to, if he could uh, use a pita bread, I thought that was unleavened bread, and the priest said, all right. And also I asked if my friend, who was an Anglican Episcopalian, could receive communion. He said, yes. So I'm just wondering, was that a valid first communion for my son? Okay, well, <laughs> um, I'm afraid, you know, I don't know what was in the recipe for that pita bread. That's why, um, you know, certainly I would say it's dubious. It was certainly illicit. It would have been invalid if um, 
there was more than just water and 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 uh, and flour, wheat flour it has to be wheat flour and water, and that's it. Now, invalidating other ingredients would be milk, eggs, um, yeast itself does not invalidate because the Eastern Church, whether it's Eastern Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, they use leaven in their bread, so it would only be illicit, wouldn't have been invalid. But other elements, like I said, milk, eggs, um, you know, adding salt or sugar, um, you know, all these other things would invalidate. That's why uh, priests are absolutely under the greatest severity. Uh, we, we must only use wheat flour with water uh, as, as the uh, Eucharistic bread. Likewise, grape wine. Okay, it can't be apple wine or uh, blackberry wine or anything like that. Um, now, uh, inviting other people to communion, that doesn't invalidate it. It's just in, improper uh, if someone's not in full communion, but using the pita bread, and I've seen, I hate to admit, I've seen it done. Um, that's so dubious that I would side saying that that's more than likely it's probably invalid, and that priest would have to resatisfy all those intentions. Now, if you weren't aware of this, you're not under any penalty or or culpability, uh, but the priest certainly is. I mean, we teach this to the guys in the seminary. You do not do this under any circumstance. And I've had requests for people who's, uh, you know, a little boy or girl making their first communion. You know, they have celiac or they have their, uh, their they have a gluten allergy or, or, or wheat allergy. Can we use a rice cake? And I said, no, you can't. I said, I'm sorry. I can get very, very, very low uh, gluten, uh, you know, type of bread made by these special nuns uh, that has almost negligible, but there is some very small percentage of gluten in there, but rice cakes will not, you cannot, it's invalid. You cannot make them into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. And even though, um, you know, I've had requests for that, uh, you know, we say, well, instead of the, the sacred host, you know, Bobby or, or Susie can take a sip of the precious blood or something like that. So uh, I, I hope we've answered that question. It's Monday night. That means the journey home with Marcus Grodi, 8 p.m. Eastern time tonight. Tonight, Marcus welcomes former evangelical Protestant Jason Craig, who will explain why he felt called to convert to the Catholic faith. That's the journey home tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern time, right here on EWTN radio and television. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. Let's uh, take a listen to another of our listener comment line calls. Hi, my name is Vladimir, and I went to a Catholic high school where I received Catholic training in Catholic studies. A priest told me that I did not have to receive RCIA since I received Catholic study training in high school. Is this so? Please let me know. Okay, well, it is the the individual's pastor's um, prudential judgment on whether, you know, how much catechesis you need. RCIA, technically speaking, is, um, it's not the Roman Catholic Intelligence Agency, as some people ask me about. Um, <laughs> I've never Catholic spies <laughs> running around. Uh, it's the right of Christian, Christian initiation of adults. So technically speaking, it's oriented to those who have never been baptized, uh, because that's what we call Christian initiation when someone's baptized. Now, in reality, most uh, Catholic parishes, um, it's baptized Protestant Christians who are coming into the church, and they join the RCIA program. And then so they do make a distinction between uh, catechumens, 
These are people preparing for baptism and candidates for full uh, entrance to the full communion, which would be maybe like in this case with this fellow here, uh, Vladimir, which um, now if he was um, raised in the you know Russian Orthodox Church, you know, there's very little, I mean, there's probably not as much catechesis that's needed. And so it's a case by case. Someone who has no, I mean, they may be baptized, but maybe they don't have a lot of knowledge of the Christian faith. Uh, you might need a little bit more. Now, whether you do it through RCIA, through a group, or individually by, with a priest or a deacon, uh, that's the pastor's call uh, to make. And also your individual diocese, the bishop might have some uh, other requirements. But I would say that, you know, it's not unusual to have someone in special circumstances, you know, um, you know on the fast track. But it's not to, you know, because the priest is lazy, it's just that that person knows so much and there's just probably a little fill-in that needs to be done. Again, it's a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. I think we have one more listener comment line call. Let's take a listen. Hi, this is Marla. And I had a question on at Mass every day a priest will drink wine. And I know if I were to drink wine every day, I come from an alcoholic family, I would be addicted. So I'm doing like that one guy says, don't pick it up because you can never divorce it. So I'm wondering, do we really need to have priests um, drinking that wine every day? Okay, well, <laughs> this brings to mind when I was in the hospital, I had uh, atrial fibrillation and this nurse is asking me questions. She said, how much wine do you consume? And I said, well, I said, um... I use wine at mass, but by the time I drink it, it's now the precious blood. <laughs> she said, well, how much do you consume? And I said, well, um, a cupful. And she said, how often? I said, every day. Every day you drink? <laughs> I said to her, well, it's it's not even an ounce in many cases, and all that's required for the priest is a, is a sip. And it's true, the accidents of wine remain, so the alcohol is there, and you can get inebriated. I was at Mother Angelica's in Hansville. We had a Catholic, Confraternity Catholic Clergy Convention. I had 100 priests. Mother had this huge chalice that a whole bottle of wine would fill. I told the old priest, you know, fathers, why don't you do us a favor and, and use the smaller chalices if you can't hold the big one? Well, everybody took from the smaller ones, including the young guys. I was left to consume the huge chalice with a whole bottle of wine that was consecrated in there, and I got lit, okay? I was high on Jesus, as they say. Um, I have never seen any uh, corroboration of any priest becoming an alcoholic because of the wine, because all that's requ required is that the priest consume some uh, a negligible amount is the minimum, all right? A few sips, a few drops. Okay, now, some priests, you know, pour more in there. I mean, when I was an older boy, our pastor, he, he said, don't be shy, boys. So we put uh, a good couple ounces uh, in the chalice, but... Uh, I don't see any threat of um, of alcoholism from uh, a priest celebrating Mass on a daily basis because there's just not enough. Now, it's true that some priests, because they have medical problems or former or uh, recovering alcoholic priests, they have the permission to use mustum, which is grape juice that's used in the wine production process. It's not the grape juice you get in the store. It's grape juice that a winery uses that it's starting to ferment. The alcohol content, though, is, is very low. So an alcoholic priest, a recovering alcoholic priest, can get permission to use the mustum. Um, we've used that for certain 
uh, cases too, the bishop can per, uh, permit the priest to give that to a, a lay person. But uh, a priest becoming an alcoholic from mass, I don't, I've never heard of it, and I don't think it's it's a danger. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We're not taking your phone calls today. Timothy writes in, how can I explain the Trinity to someone who says it's not biblical and that the verse in Matthew 28 was added by the Catholic Church? <laughs> I always uh, find that amusing. They said, we added stuff. We're the ones who kept. All right? We're not, we didn't add anything. We didn't <laughs> add those seven b- books uh, in the Old Testament, which you know we call the Deuterocanonical, but the protestant uh, christians call uh, the apocrypha we added nothing we maintain the integrity of the text and you know uh, it was the catholic church that put together uh, the bible itself so if anything we were the guardians of the whole content to make sure that what was authentically considered the inspired revealed inerrant word of of scripture was maintained uh, across the board um the Trinity, obviously, you know, Jesus refers to a more than one occasion that, you know, he's going to the Father, and then they're going to send, they, he and the Father are going to send the paraclete, all right? That's the Holy Spirit. Uh, go baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, he doesn't use the word Trinity, that's true, but he never used the word Bible either. So, you know, if if you want to be technical, you could say, well, nowhere in the Bible is the word Bible, and neither is the word uh, Trinity from the lips of Christ. Yet, we have not only from Jesus' mouth, but St. Paul, uh, we see uh, the concept of, of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, being uh, mentioned more than once. And the, the concept of a triune God is something that it took a little time uh, to develop in terms of its theology, but its presence was obvious there from, from day one. Um, we got an email here from Jason, and he said, Is it correct to say that we are not only declared righteous, as in a courtroom, but also made righteous by God's grace? Absolutely. That was the solemn teaching of the Council of Trent, because Martin Luther maintained that this was a, a juridic act, that uh, original sin corrupted human nature, so that there was nothing that could be done so all God would do, uh, his grace, and, and he got sort of graphic, he said God's grace uh, through baptism and sanctifying grace was like snow that covered over what the dog left, okay? Uh, he was a little bit more graphic in the German, but uh, this is family radio. Um, now Trent says, no, we don't believe that. We believe that human nature was not corrupted, it was wounded, and God's grace healed the wound, and we are made righteous in the eyes of God, not just juridically, but also, supernaturally, uh, the, the effect of, God, of Jesus dying on the cross, um, the atonement that's made, the, that, that is what we call justification. It extends from Good Friday to all of us at the moment of our baptism. And it's not just a legal thing saying, okay, uh, like when the governor pardons you, yeah, you're still guilty, but he let you out of jail. Uh, justification actually justifies us in the eyes of God. So baptism now makes us righteous in his eyes, not just legally, but also ontologically. That's why we call sanctifying grace. And uh, we got an email from Scott. He says, I'm an evangelical and have been considering converting. As I listen to all these talks on the radio and evaluate, I'm surprised that many on Catholic radio are not priests. 
Can I really rely on the answers I hear and to know that they are representing the true Catholic position? I want to be sure I have the correct information to base my decision on to convert. I think that's a, I mean, that's a very you know, sensible question to have. And I certainly, you know, I'm, I'll be praying myself personally for your bringing into being brought into full communion with the church. I think that's a wonderful journey of faith that you're starting and, and I hope you bring it to fru- fruition. Um, yeah, there are non-ordained people in apologetics. I mean, you know, and because priests and deacons, we're sort of the minority. I mean, more God has called more people to uh, single life and married life than he has called to uh, ordained or religious consecrated life. Uh, that's just, you know, um, makes sense because, you know, that's how are you going to, you know, repopulate the world if you have all these priests and nuns running around? Uh, you know, we're, we're the few. Um, here at EWTN and, you know, Catholic Answers and other places, there are a lot of wonderful uh, lay evangelists who are, you know, um, orthodox. And the bottom line is you want to, if, if they, if what you're listening to or the person you're listening to uh, re, reiterates what the magisterium teaches, because it's not my authority, it's not some man or woman's authority, it's the authority of Holy Mother Church. So as I tell people, I'm not giving you my opinion, I'm telling you what the church says, and you could be a priest, you could be a deacon, you could be a lay person, uh, as long as you teach what the church teaches, if it's in the catechism, if it's been taught at an ecumenical council, if if it's a teaching of in, in a papal encyclical, um, you know, that's that's where you need to know. That's the authority. And uh, the person saying it, okay, now it's true here at the seminary, um, we have theologians, lay and ordained, who get a mandatum from the local bishop to teach uh, theology in a seminary or in a school. Um, but at the local level, all right, you, we, we, uh, I think Pope Francis is the one who's encouraging people to uh, become catechists. So it, it is something that is more than just for the ordained. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? Absolutely. Benedica vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Trujillo, and our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for, uh, so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Monday. We do the program every day at 3 p.m. Eastern Time right here on EWTN Radio. Tomorrow we're talking faith, family, and fellowship as we do every Tuesday with our very favorite Father of Mercy, Father Wade Menezes. Until we get together then, God bless.